Have you ever heard of the expression or the term a photobomb? Now, if you look up on the screen, you will see this is a perfect example of a photobomb. So two people or one person or a family or friends, they're taking a picture and someone or something likes to get in the way and they stand out of what would have been a perfect picture. Uh, they do something to make it look a little, a little silly or, or kind of disrupt it a little bit. When I was in New York, people are taking pictures all the time. Uh, this was a couple, uh, maybe about a month ago. And I remember sometimes I just like to turn over my shoulder and smile in it. And so it's a little surprise for the people when they get home and look through their vacation photos. Photo bombs, right? Now... One of the greatest photo bombs I've seen, or one of the things that I thought was pretty interesting, happened at a Texas A&M football game. There was a young man, and he would just stand right next to uh, the coach at the time, who was R.C. Slocum. And this young man actually played football with my brother-in-law. His name is Kyle, and he was on the math team with Mary. And it was interesting to me. I remember seeing him at church one Sunday. He went to church with them, and he had this Big 12 championship ring, this giant ring. And I'm thinking, this guy, I watched him play football in high school. He was a decent athlete, but... I always thought he was more of a mathlete than an athlete, and somehow he made it on to Texas A&M football team. He never really played, but he made it on there, and he would position himself in the exact right place to all at the game. Anytime they pan to the head coach, he's just standing there smiling right behind it. And so I thought he was cheesing for the camera. But then later on, some things started happening. He goes uh, from, from A&M, he graduates, and then he takes a job as a graduate assistant on the football team for a place called Louisiana Monroe, a little college in Louisiana. And then he moves to a, uh, a, a bigger college from there. He, he goes and he takes an assistant coaching job at Indiana State. And then he goes to the big time, he goes to Ole Miss, sorry about that, Cassie, uh, he goes to Ole Miss, and, and he's, he has a role there. And from Ole Miss, he makes it to the NFL, and he spends, since 2010, he's been with the Cincinnati Bengals, he's been with the Detroit Lions, he's been with the Jacksonville Jaguars. And this guy that I thought was more of a mathlete and probably never, uh, you know, just that skill set to get on the field has made quite a career for himself. And I realized as he's standing behind the coach, what I thought was uh, what he was cheesing for the camera, I think he was learning what it meant to be successful. Well, he was learning what it meant to be successful and what he wanted to accomplish. And I would say for someone to, uh, to, to walk on to a, to a college football team and to uh, move the, up in the ranks to the highest level that you could get, is pretty successful for what that person wanted. And what I see here is if we want to be successful in what we're trying to accomplish, we need to be closer to greatness, closer to the person we're trying to achieve that greatness from. And if you look in schools, a lot of times if you want to do better in your classes... Most professors will say, sit on the front row. There was a study done um, at Penn State University, and it, and it showed 
people that sat on the front row typically scored higher than all the other rows back. And so they did this study and they started uh, looking at their students and they, they figured out those that were in the, on the front row averaged um, high Bs. Those in the middle row, they averaged high Cs. And those in the back row, they averaged high Ds. And their conclusion was, if you want to learn a little bit better, sit closer to the teacher. If you want better grades, sit closer to the teacher. Because you're not as distracted. You're able to see what the, what, what, what the professor is saying. You're able to see what the teacher's saying. You're able to engage in the classroom. And they say you're able to take better notes. And if it's true that we sit closer to the teacher to get better grades, wouldn't it be true the closer we get to the master teacher, the closer we get to the cross in these songs that we've been singing, nearer and nearer to the cross, the more successful we will be in achieving what we want to be. And what we're wanting to achieve, I hope and pray, is that we're wanting to be more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Since January, we've been on this journey with Jesus. We've been following him as he leaves Galilee and he makes his way to the cross. And he's making his way, as he's making his way to the cross, he's stopping at all sorts of different places and he is changing lives of people. He's either giving them a great education, they're teaching them about what it means to live for the kingdom of God. He's healing people, he's feeding people, but he's making these little stops all along the way. And here and now, he is in Jerusalem. And he is at the place that he set his face towards. He's at the cross. Or is at least making his way to the cross. You see, Jesus knew what the end result was going to be, and he knew that he was going to have to be sacrificed for a sinful human race. And he knew this from the very beginning, before the world was ever created. It says in Ephesians 1, verse 4, even before the world was made, God loved us and he chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Before the Lord, before our our. our, our our Savior created this world. Before God created this world, He knew that man and woman would be sinful and they would leave Him, but He had a plan. His plan was to come here and His plan was to be a sacrifice, was to pay the penalty of our sin. And we see in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. It was nothing that we were doing great that, that allowed Jesus to die on the cross for us, but he knew we needed his salvation. We knew, he knew we, ne he, we needed his sacrifice. And even while we were sinners, he died for us. He took this first step for us. And he knew what it was going to take. Even at a young age, Jesus would go to 
the temple. And he probably spent plenty of time in the synagogues. And he would read what the Messiah was going to suffer. And so he would read things like Isaiah in Isaiah 52 where it says, But many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured. He seemed hardly human. And from his appearance one would scarcely know he was a man. Then Isaiah says in 53 when he's prophesying the death of Jesus, he says, But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. As Jesus has made his way into Jerusalem, as he has gone in there, he is now being handed over to evil men so that he can be a sacrifice for all of mankind. He knows what's going to happen. He would read about it from the time he was a child and as he was growing up. He knew exactly what was going to happen to him. That he was going to be beaten. That he was going to be whipped. That he was going to be scourged and that he was going to be crucified. And the Roman government had a way of determining how long a crucifixion would last. As they were planning a crucifixion, it could last multiple days. Or it could last hours. And the way that they decided to handle that was what happens before the crucifixion. It was the beating. It was the scourging. It was the whipping. And they knew if they beat their person, their convict, bad enough, the crucifixion wasn't going to last that long. And that's what they did. They beat Jesus mercilessly. And Isaiah tells us what it looked like. It wasn't that it was, a lot of times we'll see these pictures of Jesus on the cross with a trickle of blood from his head, but that's not what Jesus looked like. It looked like what Isaiah said. He was so disfigured, he hardly seemed human. From his appearance, one could scarcely know he was a man. This is what our Lord did for us. A little over 2,000 years ago. This is what He did for us. And now He was making His way to the cross. After being whipped, beaten, crushed. In Luke 23, verse 26, it says, As the soldiers led Him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. We now see an outsider. We've been talking about all the outsiders that Jesus meets along his way uh, to Jerusalem. And this is an outsider. This is, this is a man named Simon. He's from the city of Cyrene, which is in North Africa. And the soldiers grab him and they put the cross on him. And he carries it behind Jesus as he makes his way to the cross. And what's interesting is we see this. One of the taglines in a lot of Jesus' uh, uh, sermons, one of the things that he talks about and he tells his disciples about is for you 
to deny yourself and carry your cross. The Gospels talk about this. They all talk about this. They, in Luke it says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up their cross daily and follow me. Matthew says, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And, if, and Mark says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And what we see happening here is Simon, the outsider, is literally doing what Jesus has been telling his disciples to do. He's told all of his disciples this is what they're supposed to do, but his disciples are nowhere to be seen right now. They've scattered. But this man, Simon, now is holding the cross. And he is following behind the Lord, the Messiah. And we, are not, we don't know too much about Simon. It, it's interesting, the, the Scriptures, all of them, but John talk about this guy, Simon. But they don't say too many words about him. One of the things that we do know is, like I said, he's an outsider. He's from North Africa. A lot of people assume that he is probably on a pilgrimage. He is coming into Jerusalem to partake of the Passover. So we assume he's a religious man. Or he wants to see what's happening at this religious Passover. But Simon's life is going to be changed this day. It's not the Passover meal that's going to change his life. It's walking behind Jesus. Carrying the cross of Jesus. Mark tells us a little bit more about Simon. Mark tells us that he has two children, Alexander and Rufus. And why does Mark tell us that? Why? That's, a, that's an interesting thing in Mark's gospel. Why does he say Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus? Usually it's these are the sons of so-and-so. Well, I'm assuming Mark has readers that know who Alexander and Rufus are. And what's interesting is if you look in the book of Romans... The very last chapter, it talks about one of Simon's sons, Rufus. It says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also greet his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. And so we see a little bit more information as Mark, what most people think is he is writing the gospel of Mark while he's in Rome with Paul. And Paul says, greet Rufus, he is chosen by the Lord, and greet his mother as well, who was a mother to me. As Simon is following behind our Lord and Savior, he's hearing the interactions that Jesus has with the crowd. He's seeing the love that Jesus has for his people. And Simon's heart is changed that day. And not just Simon's heart is going to be changed but a generation of Simon's family are going to be changed. His wife is going to be like a mother to Paul. His sons are going to be leaders in the church. Simon's life has changed as he gets nearer to the cross, as he follows Jesus, as he does what Jesus asks. Before Simon met Jesus, he had religion, he had devotion. He traveled hundreds of miles just to celebrate a Passover festival, a religious festival. But after he met Jesus, it was much more than religion that he had. He had reality 
of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He saw salvation from our Lord as he walked up the hill of Golgotha. Simon had both a physical and a spiritual transformation, a spiritual and a physical about face as he found out who the Savior of the world was, as he found out how the Creator of the world came down to earth and was willing to give his life for him. And he found that by carrying a cross and following behind the Lord. We're called to follow our Lord. We're called to deny ourselves. And so, a lot of us probably, we see that. We know what Jesus did for us. We understand the pain and suffering that he went through, but we still don't follow him. And what's interesting is we're making our way to Calvary. As Jesus is making his way up the hill of Golgotha, he is going to see more people along the way. And in here... It says a large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourself and for your children. And then he goes on to say, For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? As Jesus is making his way up to the cross, he sees people that are mourning for him. And our initial thoughts are when it says the, the, the women are mourning for him, we're thinking that they're the, the women of the cross. They're Mary and, and Martha and these women, but that's not who it's talking about. More than likely, what Jesus is talking to are these professional mourners. We don't typically have that now. We have, uh, if you ever go see a New Orleans funeral, you ever seen one, Chris, where you have these uh, jazz, the, these, these, they call them jazz funeral people or something like that, and, and they follow in a procession, and that's what happened back then. They had professional mourners that are mourning Jesus as he's walking up to be executed. They're not followers of Jesus, and Jesus takes this time to say, don't mourn for me, don't weep for me. Weep for yourself. What Jesus realizes is they're all watching this and they are not acknowledging Jesus as their Lord. They see the Lord, the creator of this world, going to give them salvation and they don't even realize it. If you read in Revelation, you're going to see that the world's going to get pretty crazy and Jesus references this right here. And he says if the... He says, if people do these things when the tree is green, if they're doing these things while Jesus is still here on this earth, what are they going to act like when the tree is dry, when Jesus is gone? They're seeing Jesus right before their eyes. They're seeing his love for his people. They're seeing the miracles that he's performed, and they're not giving him their allegiance. And Jesus is doing this one last bit to try to persuade these women to change their hearts, to follow him. And that's the same thing I hope that we're thinking of right now. Are we just sitting here and, and thinking about Jesus and, and, and giving him this, uh, this mourning or this wailing for Jesus, you did a lot for us, or are we like Simon that pick up the cross and follow him? Some of us will get it and some won't fully get it. And we see this happen as Jesus is now up on the cross. And Jesus now encounters two people that are being crucified with him. 
It says in verse 33, when, he got, when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. It says, one of the criminals hung there, hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said? Since you're under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man's done nothing wrong. Some of us see what Jesus is doing. They, they see the Messiah, but they don't give him their allegiance. They don't deny themselves. They don't follow him. They say, do this, Jesus. If you really are who you say you are, just do this for me. But one criminal gets it. He understands that he deserves the penalty of his sins. He's okay with that, as, as okay as you could be, I guess, hanging on the cross next to Jesus, but he doesn't want his life to end like that. He doesn't want this to be his eternity, and so I think he makes one of the greatest proclamations ever. And as this man next to him is hanging on the cross, as he's listening to the words that Jesus is saying, as he's hearing Jesus ask the Father for forgiveness of these people that are executing him, he sees the love of him and he sees that he's not just an ordinary man hanging on the cross. He sees he is a king. And not just any king, he's the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. And he has nothing more he can do but to ask Jesus for mercy. And he begs for mercy from Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. This man has lived his life as a complete outsider. He's been a thief. He's been a criminal. And yet he goes to Jesus and begs for Jesus' mercy. And what does Jesus say? You will be with me in paradise. And so today, as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we're not called to mourn His death. We're not called to be like the mourners that just mourn His death. We're called to beg Jesus for mercy and experience His paradise. As we took the Lord's Supper today, and as we take the Lord's Supper every Sunday, I like how Paul says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And so every Sunday we get together and we take, the, we take the bread and we drink the cup. But we're not sitting mourning His death. We're proclaiming that Jesus is going to come back. And how are we certain that He's going to come back? Because in chapter 24, verse 2, it says, as the women go to the tomb, to a Jesus that they thought had died days before, it says they found the stone had rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord, Jesus. 
While they, wa- while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them, and in their fright the women bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. And the message of the cross would be extremely sad if we just saw Jesus go and crucified it all in there. But it ends with the good news. The good news that they go to the tomb and it's empty. The good news that the whole entire way as Jesus is going to Jerusalem, he's trying to find the outsiders. Those that don't think that they deserve the kingdom. He's trying to reach everyone and realize that everyone should be part of his family. Whether you're from lands far away, or you have lived a life of sin, anyone that wants to make Jesus their Lord can do that. And that's why baptism is so closely tied up in the resurrection. Romans chapter 6, verse 4 says, For when we died and were buried with Christ in baptism, and just as Christ raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives, since we've been united with Him in His death. We will also be raised with him as he was. The tomb's not just empty for Jesus. The tomb will be empty for us. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection means that we also, those of us that are in Christ Jesus, those of us that have been baptized into Christ and raised in him, will not have tombs that are filled up with our bodies, but we will be with the Lord. This is a day of celebration. And each day, that we proclaim the Lord's death is a day of celebration for all of us. Because we know we serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. What a beautiful thing. If you want to make Jesus your Lord and Savior, if you want to be baptized into His death so that you can be raised just as He was raised, you can do that today. Or if you need prayers of the church to help you proclaim the good news that we do serve a risen Savior, we can pray for you. Anything we can do to help you, please come while we stand and sing.